welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. going to have a special message this morning uh, because it's a communion Sunday and uh, next Sunday I'll be heading into a four-part series on the light of the world Christmas series and so rather than move back into first John and then back out of it I'm going to to uh, step out of that study until January and we're going to be moving through the arrival of our Lord together the light of the world but today since it's a communion Sunday before we start our Christmas series next week a short uh, message on how to restore your intimacy with God. There's one text that I'll read to you, Romans 5.1, of the many that we'll touch on today. Hear the word of God with me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an eternal promise. That's the the foundation of it all. May the Lord richly bless the teaching of his word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, some time ago, uh, in my uh, wandering through all things trivial, had some downtime and the internet, two dangerous combinations, came across uh, a website uh, that, that reported a CNN article. Uh, about a, a guy named Frank Warren. And uh, he edited a book called The Secret Lives of Men and Women, a post-secret book. And I was intrigued by what post-secret could mean. Now, this was a number of years ago. Uh, but apparently, he went through a troubling period in his life, and the thought struck him to uh, hand out 3,000 self-addressed stamped postcards to strangers on the street. Just the idea struck him. And he said, you can mail me your secret and I'll read it. You can tell it to me anonymously, but this is my address. Write your secret on the postcard and send it to me and one person will know. He didn't think much would happen. Well, it turned out that Frank Warren soon was buried in postcards. The 3,000 cards he handed out came in like crazy. And then, as we would say today, this was a number of years ago, but it went viral after that. He didn't have to hand out any more cards. People passed his address on. And to the date of that article that I read several years ago, he had received over 100,000 cards of people sending him anonymously their deepest secret. Some of them actually decorated the cards, and many of the cards were works of art themselves. One postcard had an old picture, an old-timey picture, uh, you know, a Norman Rockwell kind of picture of, of a Santa Claus with two boys on his lap. And this man's secret was simply, quote, I wish my sons would contact me. So some of the secrets were simple like that. 
But the one that, that, that particularly caught my attention was one where a man had taken a picture of his own hands praying. And then he'd written, I don't know how to go back to God, and I want to more than anything else in the world. That struck me. I mean, that's the secret behind all of our secrets, isn't it? That's the desperate call of someone whose heart is convicted of sin and who is longing for a savior. And that struck me. You know, that's built into all of us. God designed every human being with something that Romans chapter 2, 15 calls a conscience. It's interesting, in Romans chapter 2, he, he, he talks about human beings who really may not even have any awareness of what the Bible says about morality. They may not have the law and, and understand all the revelation that, for example, the ancient Jews had. But he said, even these people, without any knowledge of the Bible's laws, it says in Romans 2.15, quote, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I, I, I gained out of that, that that God has built into every human being an instinctive sense of right and wrong. And it's a sense that produces guilt. And boy, I tell you, if you're born again today, if you've come to Christ, you ought to thank God for that inner instinct. Because that is what drove you to realize your sin and seek your Savior. God has placed that, Romans 2.15 says, within the heart of every individual. Now, some, according to Romans chapter 1 and other places in the Bible, suppress that conscience. They suppress that knowledge of their evil. They suppress that, that, that knowledge that they instinctively must be a giver of standards, a creator God to whom they must deal or with whom they must deal. And, and they can suppress that truth, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, and stay uh, alienated from God. But some let that conviction mature into a seeking of the God that they know is behind that conviction and a confession of that sin in his presence, a repenting and a, a turning to God in which they're born again. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a true and saving way, somewhere, whether you were six or 60, that happened to you. It's a function of how God puts you together and bless God that the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, you became justified by faith and you now have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing to have? That's the essence of Christian life. So you, you have peace with God. You are at peace with God. He's no longer at enmity with you because your sin was taken care of as you trusted in what his son did. But I found out not long, not long after the bliss of my early Christian life, after I had come out of darkness and into light and out of a lot of God-hating denial into, into love, loving Jesus, uh, I had a pretty long Christian honeymoon. And, uh, and yet, uh, it wasn't that much. It, it took some months, but I crashed back to earth and uh, sin began to become a problem for me again. 
And um, I soon discovered that you can be at peace with God, but not have peace with God in the sense that I knew I was saved, but I knew I was starting to rebel against him. And there were issues in my life that were blocking my intimacy. And every Christian who's walked more than a little with God knows that story, right? And so I began to learn in my Christian life that my intimacy with God could be hampered, and he began to teach me through the word of God and through mature Christians how to restore my intimacy with God. So I want to talk just briefly this morning about some of those principles, about how to restore intimacy with God. Your your relationship with him is not threatened by falling into sin or, or battling with sin, but your intimacy can be. In 1 John, we've already seen it, that your bedrock relationship with him eternally is secure, but you need to confess your sin and bring it out into the light, 1 John 1, 7, if you're to maintain fellowship with God, intimacy in your relationship. So if you're a believer and you're currently experiencing a sense of distance from God, and we all do at times, this is going to be, I hope, a helpful message for you. For many of you, it'll be pure review, thank God, because you're already living in this pattern. For, for those that are newer Christians or, or maybe just haven't been taught about how to be restored to the Lord, this could be d- deeply helpful. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to talk and review the basis for our relationship with God. I'm going to review the wonderful reality of being at peace with God eternally. And then I'm going to talk about what the Bible says is the bridge back to intimacy with God. So there's a basis for our relationship with God, and then there's a bridge back to intimacy with God. Relationship is eternally secure. Intimacy can be something that you feel a distance about. That makes sense? So here's the first thing. What is the basis of your ultimate relationship with God. And I'm going to put it in a simple sentence, which you'll see on the screen, and you'll just be alarmed at how simple it is if you're a well-taught Christian. But here's the statement. The true basis of our eternal and our everyday relationship with God is the forgiveness of sin. The true basis of our eternal and our everyday relationship with God is the forgiveness of sin. Now, you might say, wow, Captain Obvious, I think I've heard that before. And yet, I'm I'm bringing it out because this is the message that's being muddled even now in the way the gospel is communicated in our society. A lot of people have come to Christ for a different reason than that. You see, you have to clarify why you need to come to Christ today when you share the gospel. You see, we don't come to Christ to get a clearer purpose. That's a very important statement to make because the gospel was repurposed in my generation over the last 30 years to become pragmatically oriented, to produce a result in the target listener. And the result was to to give you a greater sense of purpose and effectiveness in your life. The surveys were done, the research was conducted, and it was determined that aimless 20th century Americans, essentially more than anything else, want a God who can give purpose to their life. And so the largest selling modern English language Christian book, The Purpose Driven Life, was written to create a a rendition of Christianity that reflected that. But you have to be careful with that. 
That book packaged the gospel as essentially meant to give you a clearer purpose in life. But that's not why the gospel was given. Take a look at the emphasis of the book sometime. I went through it, and uh, I specifically went through it to see if I could find a clear and static, a clear and understandable presentation of the gospel. If this was the most read Christian book in my lifetime. Um, There's only one presentation of it. It's in one paragraph, and it's right around the middle of the book. But when I read through the presentation, I never once saw the word repentance. The doctrine of the cross was never fully developed. Instead, it was kind of an admission card to getting in on all this dramatic purpose that the rest of the book talked about. I don't think that's a complete gospel. And that book has been criticized for that reason by many, by many people. And I think rightly so. You see, you don't come to Christ for clearer purpose. You come for the forgiveness of sin. You don't come to Christ to gain deeper insights or practical understandings about how to have a more fulfilled life. No, you can get that in a lot of different places, by the way. In fact, if you want clearer purpose, join the Marines. (laughs) Think about it for a minute. Purpose is a psychological construct. It is not an eternal crisis. The eternal crisis is what Romans 5.1 talks about. You are not at peace with God because that conscience that's calling out within you says that you have violated God's moral law and you need a savior for forgiveness of sin. You don't need clearer purpose. That just means you're going faster in the wrong direction. If you've never dealt with your eternal issues with God, You don't come to Christ for clearer purpose, but do you get it after you come to Christ? Oh, yeah. To live for him. Paul said, for for me to live is Christ. That was a purpose-driven man. But it's because he'd met Christ and had his crisis dealt with. Do you get deeper insights after you come to Jesus? Of course. You now have the mind of Christ and you can understand the word of God. But is that why you come to him? No. No. People come to Christ because they discover that they can have a better class of friends. In the, in the Christian, I, I know many people like this. They just come to Christian environments because it, it gives them a better class of relationships. That's not why you come to Christ. Do you get a better class of relationships? When you, yes. But that's not the drive. I think you get my, my, my reasoning. We come for forgiveness. So when, you, when we come to him... You enter into an eternal relationship with him, and there are two aspects to it. One you could call judicial, and then the other you could call relational. On the judicial side, that's really what the Bible spends most of its time teaching about in terms of how you are saved. On the judicial side, your relationship is made right with God, and you you receive salvation. You're made righteous in his eyes, and your debt of sin has been canceled by the work and death and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the judicial side, you receive salvation. It changes your status before God, doesn't it? That alienation that the Bible talks about is solved, and you have become adopted into the family of God. You are a child of God. The courtroom crisis of your sin keeping you out of the presence of a holy God forever is solved. 
You're declared not guilty in God's courtroom. And it's a declaration that rings out once. The gavel comes down, not guilty. So judicially, you receive salvation. Your status as a child of God begins. You're transferred into his kingdom. In the courtroom, the judgment over your life is declared to be innocent. You are righteous in Christ. And you now have permission to move into an eternal relationship with God, a fellowship forever and ever. That's pretty awesome. That's the judicial side of what what happened in, in, in God's eyes as the judge of the universe. Ephesians 1, 7, which was read in our hearing earlier, says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And every word in that sentence is total. Doesn't say, in him we may have redemption based on our performance. It doesn't say in him there's a possibility that he will, he will look at us with redemptive eyes. No, we have it. And it doesn't say the forgiveness of the past, the sins of our past, but not the sins of our future. It doesn't say we're forgiven for certain levels of sins, but other sins we're going to have to work off in some mysterious segment of the afterlife where we have to complete what Jesus did for us through our own works and efforts. How many people ta- are taught that today? No, it's a statement of totality. Let me just put it this way. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 that we have, he, he just, he leads, leads with the idea that we have a great salvation. The, 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 the English language there is so great a salvation. Well, how great a salvation is it? I came across a, a description of this from an author I read over, the, over time, and it's a little, little extended, but I want to read it to you because he's captured the totality of how forgiven you are. And you've got to know this because if you, if you don't understand how totally forgiven you are, then when intimacy with God is lacking, you don't know just how great a place you can go back to. So the question is, how great is salvation? The author answers it this way. How great is salvation? What do we mean by the phrase, how great is salvation? We mean the full, complete Positional forgiveness granted to you by God as the moral judge of the universe, the lawgiver, the sovereign judge. Complete forgiveness. Did you hear that? We're talking about the full, complete forgiveness that he gives at the time of salvation. When you came to Christ the very first time with a penitent heart, convicted of your sin by the working of the Holy Spirit and the word, when you saw your miserable condition as a sinner, yes, I said that about you. I say it about me. When you saw your miserable condition as a sinner, when you understood the consequence of your sin, namely eternal punishment, when you embraced the truth of the gospel and you sought forgiveness through the work of Christ, you received from God as the judge total and complete forgiveness of all your sins because they were transferred to Christ who paid your debt. By this forgiveness then, all our sins, notice the totality, committed at the time we prayed that, and uncommitted, all the sins of the present and the future were totally, completely, I love this language, forever and irreversibly forgiven. Let me pause there. What's it like to be irreversibly forgiven by the judge of the universe? I've never heard it put that way irreversibly forgiven. 
It can't be undone. It can't be wound back. It can't be, can't be taken back. It can't be, well, we have a 2.0 version you didn't hear about. No. You, you, no, I, irreversibly forgiven. And we were and are declared righteous by the judge who is God. We were and are declared just. We were and are declared holy, justified from all condemnation. All sin was dealt with. All guilt was removed. All our iniquities were buried in the depths of the sea, according to the prophets. All our transgressions were forgotten before God, and we were literally given the righteousness of God in Christ. And now, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Important. That's what it means to be in Christ, beloved. The scripture says he bore our sins, our sins in his body, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God, end quote. This is what happens at salvation. All your sins are irreversibly, there it is again, and forever totally forgiven. God's justice is satisfied judicially. Remember I used that word? Legally, forensically is another word you could use. It means in the court of law, satisfied. The issue is settled forever because your sins were transferred to Christ who bore in full the punishment for them all. This is a massive grace act, but this is the work of Christ. Now that's the end of that lengthy quote. I put it in another way. I put it into just a word picture for me. If I was summoned to court by God, but I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd walk up to the courtroom door, the door would be closed, and there would be a sign on it that said, in regard to the case of Joseph A. Purse Jr., case closed, court closed. That's it. Now, my friend, that is, is the judicial aspect of your salvation, and it is irreversibly yours. I tell you. So when I say that the great basis of our eternal and our everyday relationship with God is the forgiveness of sin, I think I have a lot of the Word of God to back me up. And that's where it is. So all of that to say is that that's eternally secure, irreversibly secure. But we've already learned in 1 John that there can be situations where you give in to the flesh and you distance yourself from God through getting caught up in the dirtiness of personal sin. And in 1 John chapter 1, he talked about that. So there's judicial, a judicial aspect to your, to your standing with God over here, but then there's also a relational one. And by that I mean fellowship, unity. And that can be altered by personal sin. This one, irreversible, not alterable. This one, you can experience distance in your relationship with God, can't you? Salvation is received over here, but the relationship can become distanced over here. Your status is unchanged over here, but your experience of that forgiveness and your experience of, of being right with God can be altered over here. This is all about the courtroom. This is sort of about the family room. This, it's irreversibly, you're irreversibly accepted. Here, when you hold sin in your life, you experience a little iciness as you're sitting across from one another in the family room. That iciness, by the way, is on your side. 
This is eternally settled. This has to do with the everyday dynamic of are you walking with closely with God or not? Are you intimate with God or not? And hence the purpose of the, the practical part of my message. There are times when we don't sense that intimacy with God anymore. And we need to get it back. And so that's really the, the point of the message. And it, there's different ways to describe it. We're going to go into the life of somebody who experienced the highs and lows of it in just a minute, David. But in 2 Samuel 24.10, one of the numerous times where David got off track with the Lord, he knew the Lord and he knew his standing with God. But the scripture says David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. In other words, David knew that he was God's, but he also knew he'd, he'd given into the flesh and that there was, there was a factor of difference in their relationship. So the first part of my message here, I, I've, I've basically stated the basis of our relationship is forgiveness through Christ. But there's a bridge back to intimacy with God, and that's the last part. And I want to talk about that as we close here, prepare our hearts for communion, because what better day than communion to open some things up to the Lord that might be something that's keeping you from being intimate with him. So what's the bridge back to intimacy with God? Well, I'll talk about two things as I kind of bring this into a focus. There's a pattern of how we lose and regain intimacy. And then secondly, there's a promise that Jesus gave about how that can happen and how we can be restored. So first of all, the pattern, again, uh, David, a man after God's own heart, but a man who went down a lot of dark, dark, dark hallways, didn't he? And recorded it all and was restored by God so that he could tell the story of a wandering heart. Now, I want you to go to Psalm 51, and you'll see some verses about it at different points on the screen. But Psalm 51 is the greatest confessional psalm in the Bible. And um, it gives us some insights into how David lost and regained intimacy with God. Now, Psalm 51, in my Bible, the, the title, sometimes, you know, your Bible has a different title for a psalm at the top of it. It's not inspired words, but it gives you the context of why the psalm was written. And the title of my Bible says it all. A Psalm of David, this is Psalm 51. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, the greatest sin of David's life, his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. You know the story. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth. I've preached on it extensively a number of years ago here as we went through the life of David. But David, at the height of his kingship and the height of his powers, allowed his success to lure him into into uh, disengagement with leadership and lure him into personal indulgence. And he was, his armies had been sent out to battle and he stayed home. Should have been out front leading. He was home indulging himself and alone. Another way to get involved in immorality, by the way. He was alone on a rooftop, saw a beautiful woman bathing, gave in to the flesh, gave in to the temptation and the luring thoughts in his mind. Had that woman brought to her, his abusive power led to, led to sexual assault, and he slept with her, I think forcibly. She became pregnant. He desperately tries to cover up this pregnancy. He lures her husband back home off the battlefield. Her husband was a man of character who was out fighting where David should have been. Uriah the Hittite was his name and title. David lured him back to see if he would sleep with his wife on, on furlough so that the, the child could be 
passed off as coming from their union. This man had too much character to do that. So that scheme didn't work. And so you know the story that David put together a, 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 a scheme with one of his generals to put this man in the forefront of the battle so that this woman's husband would be killed. And then he would be, David would be free to take her and bring her into his own house, make him another one of his wives to cover up the pregnancy and let his honor go on. So David constructed a, a, a life of immorality and then murder and then denial and all kinds of stuff. This goes on for a number of months and then it is revealed to him through the hand of God. Nathan the prophet is sent to confront David about his sin. All during that time, after his sin is committed and before Nathan confronts him, David lived in deep misery. His relationship with God was in crisis. His, the basis of his relationship with God, he was trusting in the coming Messiah, was settled, but his intimacy with God was just destroyed. Out of that whole experience, the sin, the cover-up, the denial, the misery, the confrontation, and then his repentance, sometime after this, David writes Psalm 51. And it's the journey of his inner soul through all the aspects of his lost intimacy with God and how he recovered it. So I don't have time to teach you the whole psalm, obviously, but I just want to point out a few aspects of how he lost intimacy and what it was like for him not to have intimacy with God anymore, and then two steps that he took to, to, to regain it. Just point out a few things here. David was definitely a believer. You can take a look at Psalm 51 and find some things that you can identify with. In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. What's that? The death of Uriah and the death of the child that came from that union. All of that was weighing on his mind. Then he says, oh God of my, what's the word? Salvation. David was a believer. No question about it. He knew that God had saved him. He knew that his eternal relationship with God, the judicial part, was secure. But he was filled with guilt over the practical aspects of his life. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David had loved the Lord for many years. David had a special and intimate relationship with God. He knew what it was like to be able to enjoy the presence of God through worship, through prayer, through meditating on the scriptures. He knew what it was like to have the Holy Spirit visit him and speak to him through the word of God and visit him in worship and visit him in ministry. He, he had a special taste of the Holy Spirit and all of that was now gone. But he was a believer. There's no question about that. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's the word again. And uphold me with a willing heart. He's going back in his mind's eye to how much he served God in the past, how much he was used by God in the past, how much he had said no to sin in his earlier life, and he had a willing heart, and he wanted to serve God. All those memories of the spiritual greatness that he had were in his mind. So he was a believer. And I learned something very important from that. True believers, listen, can be deceived by their flesh and by the enemy, and even true believers can end up in bad places. 
in terms of sin. Your flesh is still with you, believer. I don't care how much of the Bible you know or how many victories you've had with Christ. I don't care about the disciplines in your world or the strength of your personality. I know that if David could be lured into sin and then compound it with other sin, you too can be led by your flesh and the wiles of the enemy into things you can't even imagine. True believers can journey to bad places, but thank God he'll restore you still. So he was a believer. Now, because he was a believer, verse 8 tells me he was chastened. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's using figurative language there to say that when he sinned and he refused to repent, God loved him so much that God brought the divine hammer down. He did. David had everybody fooled but God. He had Bathsheba under his thumb because of his power and his intimidation and because she was in a crisis of her own that only he could solve. She was without a husband, without honor. Her, she, she had no ability to call this out. He had it all covered. He covered all the exits and he had everybody fooled but God and God worked on him over time and ground him down with conviction and guilt and he, somehow the hand of the Lord was on him so that his very bones broke. He's using language there saying, your hand was heavy on me. Why? Because my Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, I believe that God disciplines those he loves. It's called chastening. It's not eternal punishment. It's the chastening hand of God to draw you back into a loving relationship with him so that you can give him glory and get out of the trap of your sin. He loves you too much to leave you there. And if you're his, you will be chastened. Thank God for that. Sometimes you can look at the lives of people that profess to know Christ who are involved in deep and chronic and long-term sin and, and, and there seems to be no consequence for them at all. It's, I guess it's a legitimate question to ask, where's the chastening hand of God? Maybe they're not the Lord's. That's a worse fate. But David was the Lord's, and God chastened him. So he was a believer, and he did taste chastens, chastening. And in his heart, he also experienced distancing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, that's verse 10, and renew a right spirit within me. If you know the Lord, you can't live in sin without becoming distanced from God without knowing that you're involved in something unclean and something that doesn't please him. You cannot live with that without understanding it. You can't live a completely peaceful double life. He was a believer. He was chastened by God. And that chastening resulted in a distant heart from God. Verse 10. So that's what it's like. Among many other things that were true of David's whole experience here that I don't have time to go through. So that's where he was at the bottom of it, fooling everybody but God. But God made him so miserable that when the time was right for God to send that old bony-fingered prophet Nathan into the throne room of God, Nathan, the only man that could speak truth to this, this, this king of, of denial, David's heart was ready to hear Nathan because he was miserable. He was chastened. He was distanced from God. He was convicted. 
And David was ready. And when Nathan walked up to him, and essentially, you know the whole story, it's a beautiful story of how God just catches him. And he says, David, you're the man. This is on you. David crumbles. So that's the experience of what it's like to be living in that chronic nature of sin. What's the two things that he did to be restored? Well, verse 4, number 1, is he confessed his sin. He confessed his sin, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, the words that came through Nathan's lips and blameless in your judgment. He's saying this to God. What do you have to do to restore intimacy with God? Acknowledge that you've sinned against him. Now, there's different ways in my whole experience of working with people in the life of the soul where that when they're in sin and they come and, and they're miserable and they talk about how they want, they, they need help, um, a lot of them don't get this because a lot of people that I talk to are miserable and they tell me they're miserable in their sin and they want things to change because they got caught or because it's messing up a marriage or because it's threatening their business, or their addiction is taking over this area of their financial life, or whatever. Are those realities? Yes, but that's not what God wants you to say about it. He wants you to go to the source, and the fact that at the beginning, where you got into this whole tunnel of trouble, you decided to do it because you didn't know, you knew what God wanted you to do, and you didn't do it. So it's verse 4 that says, against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. True confession begins with where you're at with God. Where you left God, you need to come back to Him. Not just deal with the behavior and all the problems it's causing you. That's regret. That's not confession. That's not repentance. Against you, you only have I sinned, He said. And then verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You acknowledge where you went off path in terms of rebelling against what he wanted, and then you bring a broken and contrite heart to him. You mean business. He came clean about where it all went off first, and that was he decided not to let the Lord be the king. That's where it always starts. He confessed his sin, and then look at this. He claimed his forgiveness. In verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David knew enough about God to know that when he was ready to acknowledge that he sinned against God in the first place, he was contrite in heart, he could come back to God, and what would he find? Steadfast love. You can't out sin the grace of God. You can't out-rebel the mercy of the Lord. You just can't. He knew that he could claim forgiveness from the Lord. It's a beautiful, and this is the last verse in this psalm, and for time we're going to get moving here, but in verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. He went back in his mind's eye to what he'd seen all the years of his life, when Passover was celebrated by the people of Israel, according to Exodus 
chapter 12, you could take, they would took a, took a hyssop branch, which was, you could find it anywhere. You could hold it in your hand, but it, it had a, a set of branches on it and little leaves that were perfect for dipping into a liquid and spattering that liquid wherever you wanted it. It was like a paintbrush. And the head of the household was told to sacrifice a perfect little lamb, let the blood from the death of that lamb spill into a basin, and take the head of that hyssop branch and put it in the basin, and then put that blood on the doorposts and the, and the, the lintel of the door of the house on Passover as a symbol that when God sees the blood, he will pass over your sin and he will not judge you for it because the judgment was already paid for by an innocent sacrifice. That was a picture of the coming Messiah, the Lamb of God, and David never forgot it. And he was trusting that someday someone would die on a hill outside Jerusalem and the blood from that cross would come down and fill God's basin. And God could say, because of this blood, I can have mercy on you. I think David was looking ahead in time saying, Lord, I sinned against you. I departed from you. I want to come back. And I know that someday the blood in the basin is going to cover all this. Let me taste it now. He knew that Lamb of God was coming. And that's what you have to do. If you've sinned greatly as a believer, you cannot earn your way back to God. He already earned it for you. The blood's already in the basin. So that's the pattern. I end with the promise. A thousand years after this event in David's life, the Lamb of God did come. And the night before he stretched out his arms on that cross as the Lamb of God, in John chapter 13, he gave them a promise wrapped up in an example. I'm really going to have to shoot through this, and I won't be able to tell you all I had. But in John chapter 13, it's the upper room. It's before the feast of the Passover. Scripture says Jesus gathered with his men as he loved them to the end, verse 1 of chapter 13. And during supper, Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, verse 4 of John 13, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, that had been a missed opportunity when you come into a home at the end of a day, your feet are dusty from the Judean streets, and before you eat a meal, it was customary for the host to have someone wash your feet, usually a servant that was hired in the household. They would wash the feet of everybody before they reclined at the table. There was no servant in that house that day by divine design. There were 12 of them. Any one of the disciples could have taken on the privilege of washing the other's feet. A missed opportunity for all of them. So Jesus now takes a divine opportunity to show true humility. He begins to wash their feet. Peter rebels. I think all of them were, but were mystified, and all of them wanted to say what Peter said, usually like it happens in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You got to give it to Peter when he repented. He was all in. 
And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Two things. Peter didn't know it, but he was bathed. Why? Because he was trusting in Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah. He didn't know it, but he was in Christ. He was, he was the Lord's. And the sacrifice that Jesus would make the following day on that cross, the blood that was spilled and the salvation purchased, would cleanse Peter totally. It would cleanse him and wash away all of his sin. And he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. He was saying, your judicial relationship with my father is about to be settled. When I die tomorrow, I'm cleansing you. In fact, it's as good as done now. You're already clean because I know I'm saving you. I know you're going to be clean. Judicially, you're gonna, your record's going to be cleansed before my father. You'll be forever forgiven. That's the judicial part. But he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, and look at the phrase, except for his feet. What's that all about? Well, you could take a nice bath in the morning in Judea, there in Jerusalem, but be invited to a very elegant lunch. And by the time you got to the place where the lunch was served, you had to walk through all the dusty streets. And so every part of you was fully clean. You even smelled great. But when you got into the room, your feet were all dusty from the road. And that's why they washed your feet. Jesus was using, in my opinion, you may differ, an imagery there of the fact that though you know the Lord, you're, you're out in a sinful, dirty world. You have to live in it. You have to walk in it. And you're going to walk into things you shouldn't, step into things you shouldn't. Your feet are going to go where they shouldn't go. And, and, and occasionally, your Christian life's going to get dusty and muddy. Your feet are going to go where they shouldn't go and get things on them you don't want. It's an image of being out of fellowship with God through sin. And the solution is, let Jesus wash those feet. Let him wash that part of you that's gotten dirty on the way. Is your whole eternal relationship with God at risk? No, you're judicially clean. You're clean, Jesus said, but you do need to get your feet washed every once in a while. I just think that's a beautiful promise wrapped up in imagery. That's the whole process. Know you're his but know that you can go off the path and get dirty. Come back, ask him to wash your feet, give you a fresh taste of all that you have in him, and then keep walking with him. That's the whole story. That's how you regain your intimacy with God. I've done it countless, countless times. <laughs> Doing it today. It's our privilege because of our relationship. Years later, John might have thought back to that event and in 1 John that he wrote, which we're studying. Two verses and I close. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You don't have to sin. You can trust the Lord and obey him. But if anyone does sin, if anyone walks into a muddy street in their life, their feet go where they shouldn't go, and they get on them what they shouldn't want. 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We said, I paid for that too. And that's why I think he wrote in the earlier chapter, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that's talking about the intimacy part. So we're going to prepare for communion now. And I would just, I can't think of a better opportunity, and that's why I structured the message this way, for you to take your heart to the Lord and bring out to him whatever he convicts you about where you've been walking the streets and you just want his love and forgiveness to cleanse you. Not salvation-wise, but intimacy-wise.